Uh, our scripture reading today is Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, and uh, Mary Colley is going to be our reader. Uh, please stand in honor of God's word. Listen as I read. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. This is the word of the Lord. So we've been uh, in a series here uh, called The Gospel Changes Everything. And um, this is the last Sunday. We are wrapping up that series uh, here today. And uh, over the course of these weeks, we've addressed a few different subjects, and it's been uh, a, fun, a fun time to consider how it is that the gospel speaks into these various areas. And the last two Sundays, uh, it's been a, a, a joy for me with Eric and, and Dave uh, jumping in on the series and addressing uh, some of those uh, perspectives as well. Uh, so as we come to a close, uh, this, the, the, the subject today is the subject of, of self-control. And, um, you know, pastors run into this every once in a while. You, you know, you, ha- you have a subject matter, and the subject matter, you, you almost feel like it, it takes a level of hubris to even, to even tackle that. You know, th- this happens a lot with the subject of humility. It's like, who has the audacity to preach on, on humility? Um, and, and here, you know, who has the audacity to preach on, on self-control? Uh, if you have ever seen me with a bag of peanut butter M&M's. Uh, you, you, would, you would know that self-control is, uh, it can be a challenge. Um, and so uh, I, I come to this subject with, with that tenderness or with that awareness of the fact that this, this is a, a subject that is, it's heavy. It's, uh, it's, it's something that maybe has plagued you uh, for a really, really long time. Uh, but I also hope that uh, the result of the, the sermon today is not necessarily a, a self-help uh, three steps to, um, you know, keeping your New Year's resolutions. Uh, we, we, uh, the, the, the series is The Gospel Changes Everything, and today we're going to ask the question of how does the gospel change self-control, change our perspective on, on self-control. And to do that, we're going to look at uh, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. So first, I kind of want to look at this idea of like how, how we should live. If you, if you heard the, the verses read there just a moment ago, you heard Paul use the term self-control. It's, it's right in the middle of this text. And so, you know, what, what is self-control? How, how would you define self-control? A lot of us think of self-control, and maybe we just boil it right down as simply as willpower. This idea of almost like you know, maybe the natural idea that comes to mind is reaching inside of yourself, you know, grabbing some inner strength and, and, and hanging on, like fight, fighting the good fight. You know, some have described it as actually like turning yourself into a stone. Like, I don't care what I want, I, I won't do it. Uh, maybe you can relate to that, you know, buck up, get over it, you know, just say no, just do it. Um, that's a, the common understanding of, of self-control, just like to grab this inner strength, harden yourself. Well, in Titus 2, Paul says to Titus, and the the context here is Paul is writing to a young pastor who he's left in place to kind of get a church organized. And some of the uh, the content of this letter is Paul saying, here's how to organize your church. 
here's the things that your church should value. It's a young church, and it's a young pastor. And Paul is saying, these are things that you shouldn't ignore. These are things that you should should value. And so as Paul writes to Titus, he says in these verses, you could summarize it, stop doing bad things. He says, renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And then Paul says to Titus, start doing good things. Self-control, upright, godly lives. Like, don't, don't live bad lives. Live good lives. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound right? You know, my, my guess is that this sounds like the normal definition of self-control. Stop doing bad. Start doing good. And to be honest, to, to, to try to be honest here, the, the, the Bible does spend a notable amount of time defining this idea of, of sin, what the Bible would refer to as sin, what, 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 what sin is. And, and, and one of the ways to describe what sin is, is sin is missing God's good design. Sin is, 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 is navigating your life in a way that misses the way that God has designed you to live, that you're living contrary to how God created you to live. The Bible multiple times offers lists that catalog actions and behaviors that God says are bad. He, he, he lists these things out in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And the Bible goes on to say, don't do those things. The Bible also spends a, a notable amount of time, sometimes in, in direct proximity, of giving a catalog or a list of things that we should do, of things that God says are, are right. And then the Bible goes on to say, do those things. So God tells us uh, that, that the bad deeds will harm us and that the good deeds will bless us. The Bible, time and time again, indicates that obedience matters. The Bible also tells us, though, that we have a problem in our hearts. And that that problem is going to cause us to want to do the bad things and not want to do the good things. In other words... We really are in need of self-control. As you just, just kind of take, take an overview of the content of the Bible and say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that. You're going to find out that that's not so easy. Self-control is, if you were being general about this, it's a character trait that most people have valued. Um, they, they have in the past and they do now. Uh, the, the New Testament was written in a, in a culture that was heavily influenced by, by, uh, by Greek culture. And Greek culture loved self-control. It was one of Aristotle's top four virtues. It made the top four. Um, Our culture thinks pretty positively uh, uh, of it too. Now, we might not like it. It might not bring warm and fuzzy feelings. But we would say that's something that's a good thing. Every January, there's a lot of talk about developing self-control as we all make way too long lists of uh, New Year's resolutions. So how's it going? How's it going? How is it going when you think about the way that you should live? When you think about the lists that the Bible offers? Well, over the course of history, many have taken the content of the Bible and done what I just said. Okay, let's do it. God says these are bad. God says these are good. God says these bad things are going to harm us. These good things are going to bless us. Let's not do the bad things. Let's just do the good things. Ready, set, go. 
I actually think that that would be the original Hebrew in a number of passages in the Old Testament. That the people of Israel said those kinds of things to Moses multiple times. Moses would get done declaring the word of the Lord, and the people would look at Moses and be like, yeah, that's right. Yes, all the stuff you said is bad. We agree it's bad. All the stuff you said is good. We agree it's good. Let's do that. And then it is like a shelf life of 10 minutes, and they fail, and they cannot keep it. And as you look throughout the Bible, the Bible is full of examples of this very attitude. At one point in time, the author of Titus, Paul, in maybe his most famous letter, the book of Romans, he has this long section in the middle of that book where he basically is wrestling with this, like, what I want to do, that's what I end up not doing. And the things that I don't want to do, that's the stuff I do. He's like, oh, man, who is going to rescue me from this? This is, this is a mess. I can look at the lists. I can agree to the lists. But, man, I cannot do the lists. So look in the mirror. I, I, I totally understand that for some of you in this room, your list may be very, very different than the Bible's list. You, you, you may look at the scriptures and say, I, like, I see them as valuable, but they don't control me. Like, I, I determine my, my own life. I determine my own values. I determine what's important. I think the Bible has some stuff to offer, but I think it's archaic. So look, I, I understand that some of you, your lists may be different than the Bible's list. You know, instead of, um, instead of listing, you know, contentment, honesty, kindness, generosity, battling envy, battling bitterness, battling lying, battling arrogance, battling gossip, fighting for purity, you know, the things that come to your mind might be more like, career success, or financial goals, or weight loss goals, or organizing your storage in a way that would make Marie Kondo super proud of you. So I understand the lists might not be the same. Your list might be different, but the principle is the same. You may have made your own list, but almost everyone wants to stop doing certain things and start doing other things. Why is that? Why is that so built into us that there's these things in our life that we say we don't want to do those anymore? And then there's these other things that aren't in our life that we say we want to do those. Why is that such a human experience? Well, let's back up a little bit. God created people, and the Bible indicates that God created people to worship and to serve him. That was the original design. So when people worship God, they are actually doing what they were made to do. The Bible tells us that those who worship God, that in God, in the worship of God, we can actually find all of our deepest longings, the deepest longings of our heart. That they're, they're, they can all be met. Peace, security, comfort, happiness, belonging, a sense of self-worth. All of those things are offered in a right relationship with God. Look at Adam and Eve in the garden. Before sin showed up, they were perfectly whole. They, they, they were perfectly self-controlled, perfect order. You know, last Sunday, uh, Dave was talking about the idea that this, this concept of shalom wasn't just everything right, but everything was right interpersonally. Every relationship was right. It was all working. Everything was right. But then sin showed up. And when sin showed up, sin brought with it brokenness, including Brokenness between man and God. Alienation of man from God. 
Sin distorted our relationship with God. But this is what's interesting. The drive to worship something was still there. So sin came in and mangled up everything. Mangled up uh, the world. It mangled up man's relationship with God. It actually broke man's relationship with God. And yet, within us is still a drive to worship something. People are made to worship. You have to worship something. Maybe you're familiar with the great theologian Bob Dylan and his song, Everybody's Gotta Serve Somebody. And he goes through this long list of all these various options of who you might be. And his continual conclusion is, you gotta serve somebody. You gotta serve somebody. You gotta serve something. Uh, There's a, a, a great author named David Foster Wallace uh, who um, uh, actually t- took his own life back in, in 2008. Uh, but he worked for the New York Times. He was a, uh, uh, a, a gifted novelist. And he spoke at a uh, commencement for a college. And it's this pretty famous speech that, that he gave. And in that speech, uh, David Foster Wallace was an agnostic. Uh, but in that speech, he says, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what, what we're going to worship. So we worship something. Our hearts are broken by sin. And so what ends up happening is this. We find what we often refer to as idols. We find little gods to fill, what, to, to, to do what we think we need, to, to give us peace or security or comfort or happiness or belonging or a sense of worth. You see, the the natural human condition in the world as it is, is that we sense that something is not right. And so we have these actions in our life where we say, I should stop doing those things. And then these other things that we're like, I really should start doing those things. We have this sense that we're not right, that the world is not right, that we need something. And so we go looking. We all have them. We just don't necessarily have the same ones. We go looking for the solution. We go looking for what we think will give us that sense of peace or security or comfort or belonging. We run around chasing something that we think will do that. Every idol then whispers to us, you need me to get what you want. You need me to be who you want. You got to have me. You know, if you, if you think about the way that the, the world or the philosophies of the world think, this is, this is pretty, pretty standard. The thought is, in order to be who you want to be, do this and do this and stop doing this. Maybe you've experienced this when you've gotten into a certain community. You start to buy the clothes that they buy. You start to drive vehicles like they drive. You start to eat the food or drink the drinks that they eat or that they drink. You start to use vocabulary that they use. It's often easier maybe to see in kids. They get some new friends, and all of a sudden they are using words that you've never heard them use before. And those are words that maybe are true of this this new group of friends. We're formed. We're wooed. We're invited into, if you do this and you do this and you don't do this, that's the answer. That, that's where it's at. You want to you be who you want to be? You want to get what you want? Do this, do this, stop doing that. But boy, the gospel has something very different to say. 
So how, how should we live? All those rights and wrongs. How we actually live, mangled up, chasing after things. How can we live? This letter to Titus is not the only time that Paul references self-control. He mentions it quite a bit. Paul is the most common author in the Bible to reference self-control. He mentions it in a bunch of his letters, but other biblical authors do too. Peter talks about it, um, and uh, the book of Proverbs talks about it. When when the Bible talks about self-control, the Bible does not treat it as a command to simply exercise your willpower. The Bible's self-control is not sheer willpower. It's not about reaching down into yourself and grabbing onto some inner strength. It's not just about saying no or just bucking up. It's not just about being some sort of stoic. The self-control that, Christian, that, that, that Christians are invited to cultivate is something so much deeper than that. Did you notice how Paul puts it here in, 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 in this letter to Titus? In verse 11, he says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. What's verse 12? Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Paul looks at Titus and he says, Titus, the grace of God is training you to say no. The grace of God is training you to say no. The grace of God is teaching us to be self-controlled. Isn't that good news? That the grace of God is teaching us to do it? I I think you would say that's good news, but I also think you might say, but but how? But how? Thanks for the the, the, uh, advice, Matt. But like, how? Could 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 you pull the curtain back on that? Well, look at what Paul says the grace of God brought. He says the grace of God brought salvation. It's brought redemption. He's looking at this and he's saying this is past tense. That the grace of God appeared and brought salvation. So Paul is saying to Titus, Titus, first, you need something outside of you. You need something outside of yourself. And listen, if you're here in this room today, you need something outside of yourself. It's not so much that we have to do something, it's that we have to see something. We have to see something unique and life-changing and eternal. The, the, The Bible is talking about a supernatural work of God's grace in you. So all these philosophies of life that basically say, in order to become who you want to be, in order to be what you want to be, stop doing this and start doing that, that, that's what all those philosophies say. But Christianity says this, because you've already attained your truest identity, because you've already been rescued, be what you already are. Paul looks at Titus and says, the grace of God that already appeared, it already showed up, it already brought salvation. Because that grace of God appeared, because that grace of God is here, because you have been saved, be who you are. Live out who you are. In Christ, you have actually been reconnected to your creator. You you now have the resources to live out your original design. We just rehearsed what happened in the garden, that sin showed up in this perfect environment. Sin showed up and broke that. 
The message of the gospel is that that, if that effect is being reversed. That Jesus came to actually restore man's relationship with God. And in Christ, that's exactly what he does. Now, sure, there is still a list of do's and don'ts, but the motivation is completely different. You never see behaviorism in Bible. You, you, you never see the Bible saying, just do it. The, the Bible is always saying, look, 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 look at what Jesus has done. You are a child of God now. This is why you should live righteously. You're a son. You're a daughter, a daughter of the king. That's why you should love. Look at what he's done for you. You know, what, you know what another passage in the Bible says? You want to know why you love it all? Because he first loved you. The Bible is constantly doing this. The Bible says, while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. The Bible is always saying, get out a rearview mirror. Look back there. It's going to stun you. And it's going to change you. See who you are. Look at who you are. It is amazing. You see, what is the gospel? One of the favorite ways that we have here of, of, of explaining it is this idea that the gospel is that you are so sinful that someone had to die for you. Now, if, if you're like me and like everybody else, you, you want to downplay your sin. You want to say, well, I know I've made mistakes, but like, I don't think they're that bad. And a lot of other people have done way th you know, things that are way worse than what I've done. And we want to downplay our sin. But the message of the gospel comes along and says, no, your sin is way worse than that. Your sin is so bad that someone had to die for you. But you are so loved that the one who had to die for you wanted to die for you. And so because he has done that, because he died in your place, now your sins can be put away. You, you can actually accept this free gift of forgiveness from Jesus that are not, it's not based on your work. It's based on his work. That this message of the gospel, this redemption, this salvation, that the grace of God, when it appeared, when Jesus appeared, when that showed up, what it brought was the work of another on your behalf. This salvation is not based on what you've done. It's based on what another has done in your place. That's the gospel. Now, what happens if you reject that? What happens if you hear that message and you say, no, no, like, I, don't, I don't think so. That, that sounds too easy. Or I, I, don't, I don't buy into that. Like, of course, I, certainly I've got to do something. Well, if you reject that, then you're either going to end up with religion of truth without grace, or you're going to end up with a religion of grace that doesn't have any truth. That the, the beauty of the gospel is that it brings both of those things, truth and grace, to bear. You, you, you know what religion with truth and no grace looks like. If you've been in the church for a long time, my bet is that you've spent time in a church where that's the dominant idea. That, that's, it's a big part of my upbringing. It's what we call moralism. Truth, with, truth without grace says, be good and God will love you. Do, do, do lots of good things, and, and maybe God will smile at you at the end of the day. If, if, you, do, if you tally up enough good things, maybe God, will be, maybe God will be happy with you. So do the right thing, and God will love you. Why, why are People that are thinking that way, why are they obeying God? They are obeying God to try to become a child of God. They're obeying God to, to try to get God to accept them. But what's the other option? 
The other option is grace without truth. And, and this is the perspective that's pretty dominant in our culture too. And that is that God loves you just the way you are. No, nobody can tell you what's right or wrong. You, you, you have to figure that out for yourself. You know, dance, you know, dance to your own song. Write, write your own story. Be true to yourself. Determine your, your true self. That's individualism. That, 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 that's someone who's saying, I've, I've thrown all of this off and I'm going to determine my own future. You see, it leaves you with either moralism or individualism. But in both cases, people are frantically trying to become what they want to be. They're, they're trying to develop it. They're, trying to, they're doing what they're doing to try to get something. But that's what's so crazy about the gospel. The, the gospel actually says, no, it's, it's the opposite of that. You're told right here in Titus chapter 2 that when Jesus Christ came, when the grace of God appeared, he brought our salvation. When John talks about the coming of Jesus, he says that Jesus showed up and he was full of grace and truth. He, he, he brings this to bear in such a rich, deep way. Jesus brought our real salvation. It's already true. We're not trying to earn it. I mentioned David uh, Foster Wallace a, a moment ago. And uh, you know, that, that quote that he had about uh, everybody worships, we just get to pick. Well, he has a lot more to say. Here's a little section of, of his speech from, uh, from, those, uh, from that uh, commencement speech. He says, in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. And the quote, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. These are some of the examples that he gives later in the speech. If you worship money and things... If they are where you tap real meaning in your life, then you will never have enough. You will never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing up, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you in the ground. Worship power. You will feel weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to keep your fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart. You will end up feeling stupid. You end up feeling like a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. He says, look, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not, this is from his perspective, is not that they're evil or sinful. It's that they're unconscious. They are our default settings. D David Foster Wallace, who is an agnostic, is looking at the human experience and he's saying, we're all chasing stuff. We're all trying to find meaning. It's our default setting. It's what we're meant to do. Now, David Foster Wallace didn't have a, a, a way to orient himself to the, the, to, to the message of the gospel, to the message of the Bible. But these instincts are right. If you worship money, if you worship your beauty, if you worship power, if you worship your intellect, it's, you're going to live a life of chasing it. That idol is whispering to me, you got to have me to get what you want. And it will ask you to sacrifice everything at the, at the altar. Think about people who, who worship their careers. Think about what, they, what, what are they willing to sacrifice to advance their careers. They sacrifice everything 
at the altar of their job. And we could walk through any one of these and point out the exact same thing. In that sense, David Foster Wallace is right. And so is Paul. The grace of God appeared and it changed everything. The the appearing of the grace of God, it means that we've already, already we have become the children of God. Legally. That, 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 that's the gist here, is that when Jesus brings, when Jesus, when his work gets applied to us, we legally are adopted into the family of God. It's a past tense reality. And now we're just simply trying to live it out. We're thinking about the implications. What are the implications of me being legally in the family of God? What are the implications of my heart having been made new? What are the implications of the fact that Jesus has already saved me? You know, the Bible, it does not tell us, do this and do this and do this and become a child of God. No, it says do this and do this and do this because you are a child of God. That is dramatically different. When, 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 Christian, when a Christian sins, so let me close with this. When, when a Christian sins, here's what you're invited to realize. This isn't me. This isn't me. I, I don't have to live like this anymore. This is not my true identity. That, that is utterly different from all the other systems and how they operate. The other philosophies say you better be good or God is going to get you. Christianity says you can trust God's good way because he's already got you. He, he already has you. And, and as we read in the scriptures, it's like no one can pluck you out of his hand. We are not working for love. If you have run to God in Christ, you are not working for love. You are working from love. Look at these last verses, 13 and 14. He says, Waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That, that's, that's your true identity. That, that's what God is working in you. That's the most natural outflow to who you are now, is that you're actually zealous for the good works. It still means you're going to have to say no. It still means you recognize that there's remnants of your sin nature in your heart that run against God's good way. You still have to recognize those things. But the invitation here is that your motivation is dramatically different. Paul ends that little section by basically saying, we know what's coming. Look at that hope. That hope's already ours. We know the work he's done. We know what he's coming to do. Jesus' work for us and in us, that's the source and the motivation of our good works. This is why we want to say no to ungodliness and yes to godliness. It's actually who we are. Let's pray. God, thank you for this this text of Scripture and for uh, Paul uh, laying down so clearly the the life-changing, world-changing impact of the grace of God showing up, of the grace of God appearing. And when Jesus showed up, he brought with him salvation, redemption, and it's a free gift. God, it changes who we are. It changes fundamentally what family we're in. It changes our identity. It offers to us the the, the life that we were meant to lead. God, would you help us as we recognize, yes, there are long lists of do's and long lists of don'ts. 
But those lists aren't meant for us to try to earn. It can't be earned. Instead, God, it's, a, it's an outflow. It's a recognition of your way actually being for our good. God, would you help us to be zealous for good works? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.